Welcome to the RD2B podcast. Each week we sit down with a different registered dietitian nutritionist to showcase the diversity of opportunity in the dietetics profession. Our aim is to dismantle the notion that there is a traditional career path. I'm Carl Barnes, the registered dietitian behind the scenes of RD2B. And I am Jenna Warnock, the RD2B host. Our RD guests share their stories, career paths, and advice to help students like us succeed in the profession. Welcome back to another week of the RD2B podcast. I'm your host, Jenna, and today we are sitting down with Miss Amanda Holliday. She's the program director of UNC Chapel Hill's MPH Nutrition and Dietetics program. It is a future education model that we're really excited to talk about. And so thank you so much for joining us here, Amanda. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And so we first kind of want to give a little background into you and your current position. And so how did you get your role as director of the program? Well, uh, I am a native North Carolinian and I wanted to live and work in North Carolina my whole life. Um, I um, came into this role after completing my bachelor's degree at Appalachian State University and my coordinated master's degree at Rush University in Chicago, and then um, practiced for several years and was a preceptor for UNC's coordinated program and um, enjoyed precepting at the same time I was teaching in the dietetics uh, and medical school programs where I was working and um, it just all came together. The program director who had been here for many years, Carolyn Barrett, was retiring and reached out to me and I applied for the job and here I am almost 16 years later. Oh, wow. And that's awesome how you've been in the program for so long, both as like a preceptor in the beginning and now you're the director. And so that's really great. And so one thing that we talked about was how it's an MPH, a uh, future education model. And so what made UNC decide to incorporate an MPH? Because, you know, you hear MSDI thrown around a million times, but what made you guys decide to do public health? Well, the nutrition department at UNC has always lived in uh, our school of public health. However, all of the faculty have joint appointments between the school of public health and the school of medicine. And we we pride ourselves on being strong in both, recognizing that um, our patients not only are seen in acute care, but also live in the community and, or you know, in public settings. And so we feel strongly that our students get a solid training in public health and therefore are earning a degree and a master's of public health, but that they also have solid training on the clinical side um, because patients go between the two. And so um, being well-trained in both and having faculty well-trained in both really um, allows us to prepare a graduate who can be successful in a lot of different sectors. Definitely. And I like how you uh, prioritize both sides of the clinical realm, both in a public health setting and in that one-on-one. -on -one. And so you mentioned how you prep your students for that type of role with public health and also clinical and things like that. But do you recommend any specific experiences and skills students should have prior to applying? You no, know, 
we don't. I mean, I think that the the one thing that I would encourage people who are applying to our program to do is to familiarize their themselves with what a registered dietitian is. If they shadow a registered dietitian and a, a registered dietitian that works in several different areas, that's really helpful. Um, you know, it's a privilege to be able to volunteer someplace and get experience. So we don't require you to have a certain number of volunteer hours. Um, you know, working with the public, whether it's being paid or volunteered, is always a good skill to have in our field. Uh, but we don't have a one size, you know, one criteria that that we want all students to have. But familiarizing themselves with what a registered dietitian is is helpful. And then I would say familiarizing themselves with public health. Um, public health has been in the news a lot just because of COVID, of course, but making sure that they understand that they're, that we are strong in both and what, what the field of public health really is. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I think it's great how you kind of have that option and honestly alleviate stress on a lot of students applying where it's like, you don't have to reach a certain, you have to, don't have to check a certain box part, like, as you say, or you don't have to fit a certain shoe size. And one super unique thing that you mentioned before is that you guys don't participate in diecast and you don't need a DPD verification statement. And so with that super unique like touch to your program, what are the prerequisites that students need for your program? Yeah, good question. We're sort of a little bit different, right, than most programs. Um, we find that students coming in who have bachelor's degrees in other areas makes for a really rich and rewarding classroom environment. It's fun to teach and work with students who come from the arts and the humanities and the sciences and people who've been out working um, it, it, you know, in finance or business. I mean, it really, we have students from all different sectors and that is so fun to problem solve. Um, when we are tackling an issue and we're thinking about that, you get perspective from all those different areas and that makes for really great problem solving. When you think about um, coming into our program, you, um, really got right to the point, which is the prerequisites, because we don't have, you know, we're not all, we don't accept everyone from a DPD program, for example, and we don't participate in match either. Um, so we do have required prerequisites. We have a psychology or an anthropology, chemistry one and two with a lab and then organic, but you don't have to have a lab for that biochemistry with no lab, anatomy and physiology, microbiology with lab, and a human nutrition class. So those are our prerequisites. We encourage students to have all of those completed with grades in except for two when they apply. Because if you think about it, our application deadline is December 1st. We will take applications through early February, and that's fine. We do rolling admissions. Um, but if you think about that, if you didn't apply until January, it's hard to get a lot of prerequisites done at that point prior to the first day of class, which would be in August. So it not only helps us review 
what knowledge you have and how well you did in, in your courses, which helps us know how, you know, think about how well you'll be, how, how well you'll do or successful you'll do in the program. Um, but it also helps relieve stress for the prospective student to have, if they have a whole bunch they're trying to cram in in just the summer session. Mm -hmm, definitely. And so you mentioned already how you attract a really diverse population of different students and perspectives. But say that you have a student that does have a DPT verification statement and does have that nutrition undergrad degree. How does the application process look like for them? It's the same. Um, we, you apply through a traditional application. We use SOPHIS, the Schools of Public Health Application System, S-O-P-H-A-S. Um, and so we don't have, we don't participate in the DICUS application process. So you would fill out a traditional application through SOPHIS. I gotcha. And then with the prereqs that, um, that you need to apply, is that only for students that don't have a DPT verification statement or is it across the board? Across the board. And we find the students who are in um, DPT programs, they typically have had all of those classes. I gotcha. And then for the students that don't have those prereqs and they have to take them before um, getting admitted into the program, do you know on average how many semesters that is? If it's one or two, like a year before or what that timeline is? You know, I don't because everybody is, some people just start in and go full-time, others do part-time and work. But I would say most people plan for about a year ahead of applying. I gotcha. Um, they don't have those classes. Like if, if you come from um, like the fine arts, you don't generally have all those classes, right? You haven't taken chemistry one. So it takes those folks, they have to do some planning on that. If you come from a science background, then you've probably had some of those already. So. I gotcha. Yeah, so it definitely varies on your background, but it's good that you have a pretty clear cut. You need this class, this class, and that class, because it helps um, no matter what background they're coming from, they know what they need going in. And so then one quick question about the um, like layout or structure of the um, future education model with your um, program. And we're going to dive into like what that is and also what coordinated program is. But before we do, can you describe how your program is laid out with the MPH and the supervised practice sites? Sure. Before I answer that question, I'll just say that if students do have questions about prerequisite classes, what classes have they taken and would they count toward our prerequisite, feel free to email me. We are happy to review syllabi and tell you, yes, this would count toward our prerequisite or no, because some prospective students are nervous, like, does marriaging family in a sociology department count toward their sociology prereq? And the answer would be no, it doesn't. We're looking for a general sociology class. But before you spend money on a class, it gives people peace of mind if they can ask that question. So we just Thank ask, you. yeah, they mm -hmm. just email us and, and attach the syllabus or the course description about the class, and then we can guide them from there. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for adding that little note. And we'll provide your email address as well so that they know who to contact right. for sure. And so, yes. And then diving right into the structure of your program with the um, uh, Masters of Public Health. Okay. So the structure of our program is um, students are on campus during the fall and spring of their first year, and they're taking core public health classes as well as foundational nutrition classes. 
They go out their first summer for their hospital or clinical nutrition experience and their food service management experience. Our clinical experience is 10 weeks and our food service management experience is two weeks on site. We have some additional simulation. And then our they come back from that. And then the second year of the program, they are in classes in fall and spring. And then that second summer, they're doing a six-week public health nutrition experience and a six-week advanced nutrition experience. That advanced nutrition experience is more of a capstone experience that's tailored to their interests. So for an example, if a student wanted to do a pediatric nutrition inpatient experience, they would do that during that six-week capstone. If they wanted to work in policy or industry or more at a local health department, they could. Really, the sky's the limit. We're accredited for international placements, so we do have a good number of students every year who will go to other countries and complete that six-week experience. Um, so we, in addition to those big chunks of, of experiences or hours, we also weave a lot of those into the coursework and throughout the program. So most of that is done through simulation where we hire um, trained actors and actresses to play the role of the patient. And then the students are practicing their skills in the classroom within those standardized patient labs. So for example, when you're learning motivational interviewing, you're spending a good hour with a real person who's playing the role of the patient, who's been prepped on what stage of change they're in and, and what their concern is and why they're here. And then you're practicing your motivational interviewing skills. The faculty review that and then give you individualized feedback. The same thing in MNT. Just like with the counseling class, you go several times with MNT, you do the same thing. You are learning about condition management and then practicing your MNT skills. So we have a lot of that in a, most of our classes too. So we have hours in chunks and then we have hours woven into the classes as well. One of the big questions we get asked about all of that is where are our experiences? And um, I would just say that the first summer experience, that, that clinical experience, that 10 week clinical experience is in a hospital. And um, those are throughout the state of North Carolina. And we're fortunate enough to partner with AHEC, which provides students with housing in those communities. Um, and that is not an additional cost to our program. So students can train in Chapel Hill, but they could potentially do their clinical in Charlotte or Asheville or Rocky Mount or Greenville or Tarboro, Beaufort, right, all over the state of North Carolina. And that is a fantastic thing because it allows us to all have unique experiences across the state with different communities and then come back together on campus and share and learn from those experiences. And so we place our students by December 1st. So the first year of the program, you know by December 1st what hospital you'll be in when you start in May. And we do that to reduce anxiety and help with planning. So students know when they go for the winter holiday that where they're going to be next summer. And then we can work on planning for housing. 
and getting all those documents in order prior to going like, you know, bloodborne pathogens and immunizations and things like that. Um, and then the second summer experiences where you're doing your public health and you're advanced, we try to have those by February 1st of the current year. So we start talking to students in October of the year prior, but have students finalized in place by February 1st. Wow. So you gave a very awesome just synopsis and kind of describing all aspects of your program. First thing with the application of like what you learn in class and taking it out in the field. I think it's great how you guys have both that in class with the trained actors and stuff so that they get that simulation, but it also eliminates that stress and anxiety of this is a real situation, real person, but it still allows them to practice. And then they also still have that those big, what you mentioned, chunks where they are out in the field, but they still get that application and reinforcement, which I think is great. And then the second thing that you mentioned where they get free housing all across, like depending on their locations in North Carolina, I think that's fantastic. And exactly like with how you described that diverse, like, you know, diverse opportunities and just kind of getting to be exposed to a bunch of different places for learning. I think that's really great. And so now that you gave that example of a future education model in your setting, one thing that you did want to discuss was like what exactly a future education model is along with coordinated programs. And so we're kind of going to go in that direction of first like describing what makes a future education model a future education model. Yeah, well, we were a coordinated program previously um, where you know, students took classes toward their master's degree and they completed their internship that um, you were admitted to to both at the same time, right? And we coordinated both. And I would say that it just logistically, we're still coordinating both, right? We don't we don't require separate admission to both. and um you're you come in and the program is overseeing both of those things. The difference is the way we administer the program. Previously in the coordinator program, every student, as long as they went through the classes and the internships, they, you know, were going to be considered, they passed, right? They obviously did, you know, adequately. Um, and then they would get their verification statement. Now with the future education model, it's competency-based. And so Ascend has given us all the required competencies for every student and what level they must master them at. And so now each student, we think of them as each student's experience and how well they're doing at meeting their competencies. And those competencies are also reaching to the future so many of those competencies, the students may not see out in practice. We must teach them and they practice them through simulation because they are would be areas that we hope dietitians will take on roles in. Um, and so we're not only trying to push the practice, but push education to push the practice as well. And the way I compare it when I talk about this generally is I say the coordinated program, right? The student went through the program. I marched through everything and I got out. 
but in the future education model competency-based program, the program goes through the student. So some students are going to need more time. They're going to find one thing they're learning a little more difficult, and they're going to need more time to master that at the competency level required. And that's okay. We build in time for that. Other students are going to have prior learning. They've done this competency for years. They pick it up really quick and they move right on. So um, it's really more down at the student level versus at the cohort level. So that to me is the biggest difference in administering the two different programs. Yeah, and I think it's honestly great how you described why it's called a future education model. Like you're reaching for the future of dietetics. And I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. And so you did mention and it does sound like you have a lot of support for your students because you mentioned the housing, you mentioned the structure of the program where if they need extra time on certain competencies, you help be flexible with them on that. But other than those things that you touched or you can go more in depth about them, what other ways do you provide support for your students throughout the program? Sure. Well, I think the nice thing about being competency-based is that a student's success is what we're all aiming for, right? We we have committed by being accredited by, to, by SIN that every student's gonna meet the competency at the minimum level. So we must provide support that allows for that. So that gives us an opportunity to really work with each person and learn you know, about them, how things are going, where they need more support. So we build in an infrastructure of support and remediation. And I don't use the word remediation as a negative word, just that, you know, we didn't quite meet that competency. Well, here's some other things we can do to kind of, to get in places we could work to work on that. And we don't see that as a negative. We see that as everyone being successful. And so, um, you know, some people are really, have really great people skills and are great counselors and talkers and other people that makes them really nervous. And so, we think about each competency and what support we need when that has failed, how to help people be successful. And so it um, over time, you know, we were the first in the country along with Rutgers to be accredited for the future education model. So we admitted our first class in 2018. So we've been doing this a while and we have developed supports by each competency to help students be successful. I would say that in addition to that infrastructure, we have a team of dietitians that are supporting our students, um, in addition to faculty that are visiting the students when they're out in their internships to provide support. Um, and then we also are helping them with academic skills. Not only are, are, is our team supporting them on that, but also the you know, what you might imagine on many college campuses, we have a wonderful and robust writing center, right, for international students. We have conversation groups um, to help them with English speaking, right? Their writing might be wonderful, but English speaking, think of all the nuances in in language, right? And and um, sayings that we have that if you're not a, a you know, native English speaker, don't make any sense. So um, helping them with that, um, and then additionally, you know, we, we try to really look at each student individually and think about their challenges and supporting them. You know, we 
we have parents in the program. We have um, students who are caregivers of older parents. We have um, students at various points in their life. You know, life happens, right? I mean, we don't put pause and press pause and and not have illness and and celebrations and all that goes on. So we really try to work one-on-one -on -one with the students. But in addition to housing, which we utilize in all of our experiences, I only gave that example in clinical, but we utilize it in all of our experiences. Um, we also provide the students the support. We, they don't have to find their own placements. I have never supported that concept and don't won't, won't start anytime soon because we want to establish a relationship with our preceptors and we want to screen our sites to make sure that they can provide the competencies. And we want to develop good relationships with them. So we feel that that's our role. That's not the student's role. Their role is to learn and to be accomplished in that setting. So we, um, we do all of that for them. We also um, assist them with all their onboarding. So we don't hand them a contract and say, go do these things. We use PRISM, which is a web-based tool to help, help track your competencies and all your requirements, um, where they go in. And once they're, once they're assigned a site, we have a template built. Okay, so prior to starting on May 14th, these are all the things I need to get done in the deadlines. And we have a team that works with them to help them get all that done during their busy schedules. Um, so, and then of course we, we're, we, we, we work and live in an environment rich with, with, I just, you know, the university campus supports as well. Yeah. And that definitely sounds like you also touch on their personal, you know, like their personal needs, academic needs, and like making sure that they go through the program so that they can succeed the best that they can. And so you did focus a lot on making sure that you have an individualized approach with your students. And so with that, what made me think of is how many students typically apply to your program and then how many typically get accepted? So about how many students do you interact with? We have between 150 and 200 applications. Um, and we typically have a class around the size of somewhere between 35 and 40. So at any given time, we would have about 80 students in the program. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so definitely, because, um, you know, I'm sure that there's been a mis like some misconception or you possibly heard like, you know, UNC Chapel Hill, it's super prestigious and it's like you have to have super top marks and be like the best of the best. But definitely with what you've been describing of like, you can come from any background, you can have any type of experience to really do well in the program. So I think that's a really great thing that your program offers. Yeah, we, we really value different experiences and diversity um, because that allows for a great cohort and class to work together. We start our program by reminding people that, you know, let's, let's, let's get rid of the mentality of competition and everybody's trying to get an A. Our grading scale is called H, P, and L. We have high pass, pass, and low pass. We don't even give, you know, A, Bs, and Cs anymore. And we want students to engage with the content and, and remove this traditional competitiveness and with each other and realize that the more we work with our colleagues together, 
um, the greater everyone's success is. So everybody's bringing to the program experiences and strengths, and everybody's bringing weaknesses and things they've never learned about or participated in. And if we can recognize that and capitalize on that, that makes for a much better experience. <laughs> so when I see competitiveness and people, you know, when that, when I see, I see more of that in the undergrad world, but if I see that rear its head in the graduate world, I'm quick to discuss that and say, you know, uh, and, you know, we need to work together. We're in graduate school. Um, and we try to really think about learning at that. Like we're adult learners, right? We, we want to have the opportunity to learn as much as we can and critically think and discuss as much as we can. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I think you brought up a great, uh, like, you know, conversation of you don't want to be against each other, you want to be with each other. And that's really the best way that you learn and get the most out of that program. And I can really easily see how that might be one of the like favorite parts of the program for possible students or people going through the program. But do you have a common theme? Or do you see a consistency of what students like most about the program? Oh, well, I mean, I, I could answer that question a couple of different ways. Like what, where do they end up taking jobs? Does that influence what they like most about the program? We see about a equal split between taking on clinical jobs that we would define where they're working with an individual versus a public health job where they might be working in groups with people or with communities or populations so we see a 40% do clinical, 40% do public health, and then another 20% do other, work in NGOs, work in um, all sorts of areas that, you know, the, the field continues to change and grow. Probably in the program, the thing that I hear the most that, that the students like about the program is that there is that mixture of public health and clinical, that we want to be strong in both. And, you know, those those two areas handshake all the time in the real world. And just because you know how you have really good clinical skills and you can treat someone well, that person gets discharged. They're only in the hospital a really small percentage of the time. And you need to have good skills to know what to do when that person goes back into their community because that's a lot of times where the biggest change happens. And if we stop short in the community and we don't think about how can we prevent them from getting in the hospital and how can we make their transitions in and out of patient care easy and connected, aren't we doing our patients a disservice? Um, so I think that, you know, I hear a lot of students talk about how they like that that is intertwined um, in the curriculum. Yeah, and I think it's great how you focus on that prevention aspect. And it's like, and actually it's so funny because I'm taking a community nutrition class right now and we're focusing on like public health's most big driving thing is behavioral change more than anything because that's going to be what makes them whenever they're sent out of the hospital to actually stay consistent because you can tell them exactly what to do, but will they do it if their head, you know, like if they're not like actually in the game? No. And so and I think- game but the environmental factors around them don't lend themselves to that we set we're setting people up for a real mountain to climb aren't we I mean you, mm -hmm. you don't have a safe community to to move in or a safe place to move or access to food 
um, you know, a healthy food, you know, uh, or safe way to access food, right? It's hard. It doesn't matter how much education you have. You, you, you It's an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. I think it's great that you guys highlight that in the program because you really allow your students to get the holistic approach to what they see with their patients and how to address them appropriately. Because not only do you give your students an individualized approach, you allow them to learn how to give individualized approaches to their patients in the future. And so I think it's great how you have that like little, um, I don't know if you'd call it a funneling down or anything like that, but you know, you kind of translate what you want the student to do as well in the patient world. And so you've covered a like a plethora of information about future education models, your program, the awesome support that you have. And so we really do want to end on this final note of what advice would you give to RD2Bs applying to dietetic internships in the future, future education models, coordinated programs, all across the board? <laughs> well, I would say that... Um keep your minds open. <laughs> I think being open-minded is a wonderful thing. You know, I see students who are like, I'm only doing this one thing and this is what I want to do. And then they get in a class and they say, I never even knew that existed. I didn't even know that was a possibility or the science changes, right? Think of all that we know now of personalized nutrition. Um, and they are, they and people who are close-minded miss those opportunities and we see unique and, and fantastic linkages occur. Someone who has maybe has had experience as a ballerina as when they were a small child and, and then they get interested in, in athletics, but they're also, they have an allergy, they're interested in allergies. And then they find out, oh my gosh, I didn't know that, that metabolic nutrition was a thing. And they end up bringing all that stuff together and doing fantastic things. So, um, keep an open mind and enjoy learning and, and enjoy, you know, learning and networking. I think that our education is important, but networking and continuing to learn is really important. And we can't improve the field and push the field and be better as, as practitioners unless we do that. So that would be my advice to future RDs. Um, yeah. For sure. Yeah, thank you so much for, yeah, because I think that's a great note to end on. And I really appreciate you taking time to talk about your program, talk about different program types, and you really are going to benefit a lot of prospective dietitians. So thank you so much for taking time to talk today. Yeah, thanks for having me.